you're not vast. Um, <laughs> well, whatever it is, basically, you like the religion. Yes. Is there one aspect of the faith you find particularly attractive? <laughs> I think the hats. The hat conveys that, that solemn religious look you want in a faith. Very pious. Uh, are you familiar with orthodox theology? Well, perhaps not to the extent that, that you are. But, uh, <laughs> but I, uh, I know the basic plot. Yeah. I must say, George, I was somewhat surprised at the results of your conversion test. I don't recall having seen such an impressive performance. <laughs> you truly must be filled with the spirit of the Lord. Oh, I'm, I'm full of it, Father. Dominus dos Dominus. Congratulations, George. Oh, welcome to the fate. Isn't that great? You know, he did so good in his conversion test because he cheated on it. I don't know if you guys remember the episode. It was great, right? So uh, he did that because of, of a woman. He wanted to date this woman who was Latvian Orthodox, and her parents wouldn't let her date him unless he converted. So he goes through the process, and it's, you know, a quite lengthy process. And he tells the woman, and she goes, well, I'm leaving the country for two years. It didn't go good for him. My name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. I'm excited about today's message. I, I really am. It's called, uh, by the way, it's, we're continuing our series in 2 Corinthians this summer. And then today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And the name of the sermon is Religion is Scary. And it is, quite frankly, very frightening religion is. As a pastor, uh, I'm scared of it. I've been fired by it three times. <laughs> so, you know, <clears throat> let, me read, let me read the passage to you today, okay? Um, are, we, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, a reference to the Ten Commandments, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. And then we skip to verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, again, a reference to the Ten Commandments. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away, the veil, that is. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I love that part of the passage. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another one. 
For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, like we do in the garden, to really understand a passage, you have to understand the history. What about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? You have to understand the theology. What about God? What did he do? Why and how did he do it? And then can you really understand the devotional? What about you? What are you and I supposed to do? And how are we to do it? So let's look at the history. Just really quick, a reminder about what the purpose of 2 Corinthians was. Remember, there were two purposes. First of all, Paul is defending his authority as an apostle. People were attacking that, if you remember correctly. I laid that out a couple weeks earlier. There were people coming to Corinth and saying, don't listen to this guy, Paul. He doesn't have the authority to tell you that Jesus is the only one who saves. He's not even an apostle. And Paul is defending that. The other thing that Paul does in 2 Corinthians is he defends the gospel. I want you to make sure that you understand as I write this book that I am telling you that no matter what anyone else says, if they preach some other gospel, they're wrong. The gospel of Jesus is the one that saves. And he, and he writes the Corinthian letter in 2 Corinthians to defend those two things. So what else happens historically in this passage is there are big shots coming from Jerusalem. These were people either sent to Jerusalem by religious leaders or coming on their own to try to cash in on what was happening. Because remember, Corinth is a very rich town. It's a merchant town. There's a lot of money involved. And so if you can get some sort of a following, a religious following, you can cash in. Maybe you could even buy a stadium and have church every week. Televised to millions of people across America. Oh, I can't believe I did that. All right, well, anyway. All right. They're outsiders. They're not Corinthian people. They're outsiders with letters of recommendation. These letters were written for these people who the Corinthians did not know. They had not been invested in the Corinthians' lives, so they hadn't been there when some of the Corinthians had lost a child or when the, some of the Corinthians had lost their jobs. They had not been there when some of the Corinthians had been beaten for believing in Jesus. They had not been there when the Corinthians became Christians. They had not been there. These new people coming from the outside had no emotional, spiritual, physical connection with them. They just came with letters from Jerusalem saying, Listen to these people. They come with our blessing. They know what they're talking about. They're outsiders sent to stop the gospel of Jesus alone. And the reason they have authority is because somebody in another town said, these people know what they're doing. And Paul says, we don't need letters of recommendation. We don't need no stinking letters. And he explains why. Paul says, when we come to you, we didn't come with letters of recommendation from Peter or John or Matthew or Luke. Nobody wrote a letter of recommendation for us. Our authority, our letter of recommendation is written on hearts. The Corinthians were his letter of recommendation. You know that what we're saying is true because of what has happened in your lives, how we have been there with you, suffered through you, been there in pain, been there in victory, been there in agony, been there in defeat. We've been there when you were hurting, when you were thriving. You are our letter of recommendation. And the fact is, our letter, which is you, is written on your heart, not on paper or not on tablets of stone. Our letter of recommendation is what God has done in your lives. In fact, it is impossible for somebody to say the gospel is not real because look at what it has done for you. And not only that, Corinthians, 
Everybody in the whole region is talking about it. They're all talking about what's going on in your town, what's going on in your church, how the gospel has changed you, how it's transformed you, and everybody out there can see it. And you know what's even better? It's not written by corrupt human beings in Jerusalem. These letters that are written on your hearts are written by Jesus himself. Not by flawed men who are doing this for ill-gotten gain or the wrong motives. See, the proof of the authority of Paul and the gospel message is evidenced by what God had done in the hearts of the Corinthians. You will know them by their fruits, the scripture teaches us. And Paul was saying, they can keep their letters of recommendation. When I want to prove the authority of the gospel, I'm not going to point to a letter from some religious leader in Jerusalem. I'm going to point to you and what God has done and is doing in your lives right now. That's so much better than some stupid letter. So that's the history of what's going on in this part of the passage. Now let's look at the theology of this. Now, there are basically two glories that Paul talks about in this passage. And first he does this reference to Moses. And I put the reference up there, but I'm just going to read the passage to you because it was kind of long. I didn't want to have a bunch of slides. So do me a favor and and try to follow along as I read it. It might take a little extra attention, but just, just try to follow along. Now when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and the testimony of the Lord in his hand... As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone brightly because he had been talking with God. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face was shining, and everybody was afraid to go anywhere near him. Isn't that interesting? That glory frightened people. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And as Moses was speaking, he put a veil over his face. So whenever Moses went in to talk to God, he would remove the veil when he's in talking with God until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what God had commanded, he would put the the veil back on his face so that the skin of Moses' face that was shining would not scare them. And he did that every time. So this is what's interesting about this story in Exodus. The old covenant had the glory of separation. He references the glow of Moses' face and and how after talking with God, Moses' face and the glow caused fear in the hearts of the people. And the glory of God's righteousness and the Torah taught how far off we were from that glory. What happened was that the old covenant said, this is what glory is and this is how far away you are from it. Religion was dictating to the people, you cannot be that. And so what begins to happen is, as you can see, if you're involved in that type of environment, God's scary. Religion is scary. It produces fear of judgment because of how bad we are. 
But the new covenant has glory through reconciliation, which I love. Let me explain what that means. What Jesus does and what Paul explains in the passage is this, that what was frightening before the glory, the veil and everything, what frightened people before, the glory of the new covenant brings you near. And so what he's saying is religion before Christ was something that you had to have a veil between God and man because when you look at it, you're afraid and frightened just how bad you are, how sinful you are, because religion, guys, is very good at telling you how sinful you are. And religion is very good at telling you you've got a lot of work to do, buddy. Some of you more than others. But the new covenant transformed. Paul says, therefore, we are bold. And what Paul is explaining is the new covenant transforms us from timid before God to bold before God. I mean, think about the contrast. Moses is just talking with God and comes out and his face is shiny, and that frightens everyone. Can you imagine how frightened we would have been if we'd have been under religion and we had to go into God? But what the new covenant through Jesus Christ on the cross and what he does is he transforms that glory from being one that is frightening and divisive to one that is welcoming and warm and reconciliatory and redemptive and transformative. Ephesians 2, 13 to 15. Look what Paul says in Ephesians. And he's building, he's building this theology of being brought near to God when religion had us separated. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments. In other words, by abolishing religion expressed in the ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And he even says that in this passage, he says, and therefore we are being transferred from one glory to another. He's not talking about steps of glory. Now, the better you get, the more glory you have, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying we have been transferred from this one glory to this other glory, the one that was frightening, the one that was divisive, the one that condemned us and separated us from God to the one that is redemptive, transformative, Open arms. We have been taken from this glory that is scary to this one that is loving. Now, don't get me wrong about religion. Religion is amazing. I mean, it's got glory. There are cathedrals. That's glorious. When I walk in, I'm afraid there's something on the bottom of my shoe. I don't want to mess up that cathedral. Religion's got money. Big money. Big, big money. Religion's got robes. It's a, a good-looking man right there. And has a good-looking priest. He's got robes. Robes are cool. I mean, they hide a lot of uh, imperfections, if you know what I mean. Religion's got catechisms and confessions and flowery words that are, and see now, just so you know, I'm not ripping on, 
That's the, you know, the confession of faith, Westminster confession of faith. That's the one I like. So I'm not just ripping on other religions. I'm ripping on, you know, Reformed theologians too, right? But religions got catechisms and confessions. And when you read them, they're really hard to understand sometimes, you know? Religion has got music. Massive pipe organs. Really loud worship bands. Huge orchestras. Religion has beautifully choreographed lit- liturgies. Like, you know, the way you're supposed to worship and the things you're supposed to repeat. And I mean, it's, I mean listen, it's got some glory. It's got venerated leaders. Leaders who are admired and leaders who are looked up to and leaders who, man, if I could just be like him, I would not feel so separated from God. And we have these leaders that we venerate. I have yet to tap into that for some reason. Maybe it's because of my uh, sinfulness, maybe. Religion also has a thirst for self-piety that cannot be quenched. But here's my personal favorite about religion. To me, just like George, what I love the most are the hats. (laughs) See the cross they folded down? (laughs) It's very practical, you know, because... I mean, it's glorious because it's a beautiful hat with the gold and, and the cross, so it's up there. But you got to get in the car. So, you know, <laughs> look, at the, look at the security guy's face. Look how serious he is. Watch this. Watch this. Watch this. I got the hat. Don't worry. <laughs> Isn't that great? Don't worry. I got it. I could watch that all day. <laughs> I, I was searching for this little, you know, animated clip. And I saw one where it shows the guy folding down the cross, and then there's a bomb goes off. <laughs> it's kind of fun. It's like a video game, you know? <sighs> Not there. I'm talking about like another place. You guys are, oh, that's mean. Come on. I'm just joking, people. Give me a break. All right. So that's religion. But let's look at the devotional part of this, okay? Oh, I got to go back to that picture. That's so funny. <laughs> Oh, man, okay. Here's the question for you. Are we scary? Because, see, there are a couple of things that came to my mind as I was looking through this. First of all, this passage here. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That makes sense. But here's what I see about religion. Religion's glory makes us afraid. When I walk into one of those cathedrals in Europe or something like that, I'm a little intimidated. Sometimes I feel a little dirty. But you know what Christ's glory does? Religion's glory makes us afraid. Christ's glory makes us bold. It allows me to, instead of going... Dear most gracious heavenly father in thine area up there. I start my prayer with, hey, dad. And that's unheard of, right? Could you imagine starting a prayer in the cathedral? The organs just laid out a loud song. 
Let us pray. Dad, it would not go well. Christ makes us bold. Religion spells out our imperfection. Religion tells you just how bad you are. The gospel fills us with Christ's perfection. It transforms us from one glory to another. So here's the question. When people walk in to this time that we have on Sunday mornings, is our religious vibe intimidating? Is it possible that in some ways we're frightening? Do we, let me ask it this way, do we unwittingly force people to put on a veil so they don't feel intimidated by the act we put on? Or can they come as they are? As people who are far off, desperately desiring to be near to God. When people walk into church, do they feel the need for a veil between them and the glory that we put on display? Does the glory that we display cause them to think, I, I've got so much work to do before I can even begin to enjoy that? Or does the glory that we put on display produce a welcoming with open arms? See, that's the difference, isn't it? Paul just didn't critique the teachers in his letter to the Corinthians. He also critiqued how they acted toward one another. Is there anything about Church of the Palms that Paul would compare to the veil of Moses? It's a fair question, isn't it? Is there any religious glory in what we do? First John chapter 4, 17 to 19. By this love... By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence, boldness for the day of judgment. See the difference? Religion makes you afraid of the judgment day. Jesus gives you confidence on judgment day. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. I'm not good enough. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, why? Because he first loved us. You see, there's a freedom. There is a freedom, a liberty, when you are allowed to be cut away from religion. The glory of religion is its ability to judge this is the glory, and the, religion is glorious, but here's the glory of religion. It has the ability, to, the unbelievable ability to judge, to condemn, and show our deficiency, doesn't it? And there's no freedom in that. That's bondage. The glory of the gospel is its ability to forgive, to transform and transfer God's glory, the glory that we were once afraid of. Guys, listen, the glory that we were once afraid of, we become that glory through Jesus. We become the thing that we thought we could never attain. We become it. And as we, as frail humans, become the glory of God, we can say to other people, if I can enjoy it, so can you through Jesus. Do we put on such a show that people feel intimidated by our religion? Are we so produced, 
so structured, so program-oriented, so clean, and so sharp that people feel inadequate? Or are we organic, real, full of grace, so that people feel the open arms of the gospel? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is no bondage. There's freedom. As we prepare to sing our last song, I invite you to pray with me. God, we are, uh, we are free solely through your grace and solely through your mercy. For those of us in this room,